0: Mm-hmm. You're finding your place there. I want to just inform you, because not all of you were with us last Sunday evening in our um, perhaps first annual year in celebration, but last Sunday uh, we shared with you um, how this year has gone. We have had a tremendous year as a church, perhaps one of the greatest years in our church's history, at least definitely in recent, uh, recent memory. We've had one of the greatest years of all time and so this past year in worship attendance we are we were up 12 percent over last year which is phenomenal we've averaged 222 in worship we've had as many on a non-easter day as 304 and uh anywhere from 190 all the way to 304 just bouncing back and forth but we've averaged 222 we've been up 22 percent in small group now you've got to take that that number in In conjunction with where we were last year, we were in the midst for four months of renovating this floor that we're on right now, and so small group tenants went to about 50% of what it normally was, and so that number is a little skewed, but we would have been up probably in the uh, the neighborhood of 10 to 12% just like our worship, and then in baptisms, we were up 69%. We baptized 22 people this past church year, so that is awesome. Uh, And and the good thing about that number is it's not just kids. It's not just students. They were from children all the way to uh, older adults and everywhere in between. And so God has been good to us this past year just from that standpoint. But as you see, even on a holiday weekend as we are right now, the room is pretty full. And so we've had many Sundays in the last several months where It's hard to find a seat. And so we are looking to go to two services. We decided, just because we do not have the proper staff in our kids' ministry, to delay going to two services to the first Sunday in January. And so um, we're going to be working all fall long to prepare and to be ready to launch because we will definitely need it. Even in here this morning. Uh, Before the kids left the kids' ministry or kids' church, it was pretty tight in here. And so this is what we would ask of you. If you have young kids that are going to be going out during kids' church to somehow, some way, because we stand a lot during the service, to not occupy another seat. So let them sit in your lap during the times we're sitting, and uh, and then they will be uh, going out during kids' church. Also, we want to love one another. And so don't be afraid to sit next to another family. We are... In the family of God, we love Jesus, we know Jesus, we're brothers and sisters, let's act like family. Maybe you don't like to sit next to your real family, but in the church, let's like that. So when you come in, here's a couple things we would ask of you. Try to feel from the front to the back. So if you're a normal back row Baptist type of person, consider coming to the front. Here's what you need to know. I won't look at you as often. You back row people, I see every one of your faces. You sit in the first four rows, I never look at you. Uh, our staff would be like, hey, did you notice so-and-so that was leaving? What's going on there? I had no idea that was any of that was going on. Why? Because they were up front. So consider sitting in the front. Let's load from the front to the back. That gives people who come in late, that gives guests an opportunity to not have to crawl over somebody to find a seat. So if we can scoot to the middle, sit next to one another, don't waste seats. That will help us this fall because today we are in good shape. Next Sunday, when all of our people are back from this Labor Day last retreat, it's going to be really, really full in here. So just keep that in mind and uh, help us all out next Sunday. We also laid out last Sunday um, in our year in celebration just this idea because God has been so good to us. We want to continue to lean into the Great Commission, and that always calls us to more. So I want to just lay out... Uh, Real quickly, the things that we laid before our people last Sunday evening. That is, let's be uh, open to more worship, open to more giving, open to more serving, open to have more gospel conversations in the places where we live, the places where we work, the places where we play, those circles of influence that we live in, open to more missions. Man, how many of you have never taken a short-term trip overseas? We would love for you to join us in Puerto Rico, in South Asia, other places in twenty three, twenty four, And then all of that, we believe, is going to bring us more joy. You know, as we're living on mission for Christ, living with palms up, living uh, in, in a way that we're using the gifts that God has given us for his glory and for the good of others, joy will be uh, indicative of our lives, which means it'll be indicative of our church. And then in the area of finances, we laid before our church and our church adopted unanimously a new budget, and that budget is considerable more than the last year 's budget, and so our needs weekly just want you to know this is a little over thirteen thousand dollars and so uh, lean into that this year, even in an economy that I fully understand and fully get, is very difficult these days, but I believe the Lord is faithful, and I know he will always provide when we choose to be faithful as well so Luke chapter 13, let's begin there um, this morning. We're moving back into the Gospel of Luke as we took a two-month hiatus from that and talked through a, just a doctrinal study on the church. And so this morning we're moving back in, and if you remember, uh, way back when, when we were in Luke chapter 4, we saw there in verse, verse 43 that Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for this is the purpose for which I was sent. You know, as we read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus continually described the kingdom. That's why we've taken this, this study of the Gospel of Luke and we've described it or entitled it as an upside-down kingdom. Because he often speaks... In kingdom turns. And he speaks of the kingdom in terms that one cannot point to or always identify specifically. But in every story, in every story in the gospel, we see that the kingdom was an essential piece to what Jesus was seeking to convey. Think about the kingdom. We understand that it is mixed in and that it is a present reality. So as he's walking, as the Lord Jesus is walking through Galilee, and he's walking on his journey to Jerusalem, he's talking, preaching, pointing people to the kingdom of God, and it was a present reality for them. The kingdom of God is like leaven in a loaf of bread. You think about bread, and we all love bread, bread would never rise if it were not for the leaven. And yet, you take that loaf of bread and you slice it and you make sandwiches out of it. Or even if you were to dissect it and try to find the leaven, you would never find the leaven. And yet, it's in there. It's integrated into the bread itself. Much is the case with the kingdom of God. The bread would be radically different if there were no leaven. Therefore, the kingdom, think about this. It's like that tiny mustard seed. That sprouts into a giant bush. The Bible even describes it as a tree. That bush, that tree grows and and it's enormous and you can never find the original seed. But that tree is so big that birds come and nest in its branches. But you can never find the seed. But if it wasn't for the seed, there would never be the tree itself. The mustard tree. Much is the case for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus explained that the kingdom of God was not coming in ways that one could observe. You see, no one's going to be able to say, there's the kingdom. Look, I see it. Can you see it too? We can never just fix our eyes upon the kingdom of God, and yet it is a present reality. The reality for Jesus' disciples, the reality for those of us who know him as Lord and Savior today, was and is that the kingdom of God was an already presence within them. This concept is such a colossal paradigm shift. Think about this. There's an upside down way here of looking at an inside out world. And it is as disruptive now as when Jesus spoke of it. You ever think about when you're singing these songs that we sing, the songs specifically that deal with the kingdom? We don't live physically in a kingdom. We live in a democracy, or better yet, a republic. We live in an altogether different type of society and government structure. Personally, we know nothing of the kingdom as it pertains to civil government. But when it comes to the word of God and the kingdom of God, we most certainly are within the kingdom. And so we struggle to understand it. And even when we try to understand it from a biblical standpoint, it's hard for us to lay eyes on this kingdom. And yet the Bible assures us that we are part of the kingdom of God. So Jesus here is telling the people then, and he tells us today that we will not be able to identify the kingdom geographically. We're not going to be able to point it out in one singular event. And even though the fuller the fullness of the kingdom is not yet realized. The kingdom has begun. The kingdom is here, and we are vital to the realization of that. The kingdom is everywhere, then and it is now. It is within us, it is among us, and it is something that is worth losing ourselves to gain. As we've worked our way through the first half of Luke's gospel, we have seen this emphasis on the kingdom. Even in this final chapter that we were in before taking a two-month break from this gospel, we saw there that Jesus, in chapter 12, speaks and calls his people to be ready, to have a readiness for the kingdom. Even went so far as to warn that the kingdom itself would become a dividing factor, that, that families would be divided amongst themselves over the kingdom of God. Today, as we pick back up here in Luke chapter 13, we are confronted with a requirement for entry into the kingdom of God. And that requirement is repentance. Take your Bible and let's read the first nine verses in chapter 13 here in Luke. The Bible says this. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, that's the vine dresser, answered, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. In chapter 12, the words of Jesus that he exchanged with the others become more and more aggressive. He really speaks strongly with the people there who are watching. And now we are kind of... Seeing a different perspective or a different, different aspect of that ongoing conversation that Jesus is having with these listeners. And so, here in chapter 13, Jesus is equally aggressive in these first verses. You see, the Lord Jesus is not in the habit of telling people what they want to hear. This morning, if you came in here and you wanted your ears tickled like Paul warned Timothy was coming, Jesus has no words for you other than harsh words words that will not tickle your ears, words that don't want not, will not make you feel good, words that will not uh, support whatever system you're wanting to live by. No, Jesus spoke the truth. He spoke it in love. He's spoken in kindness. He's spoken in grace. But he's also the same Jesus who, when he enters the temple areas, as we read this morning, if you're reading through the Bible, he's overturning money tables, money changer tables. That's the same Jesus. And so he rarely, if ever, spoke a word that people wanted to hear. He spoke what they needed to hear. And so Jesus here tells the people what they needed to hear. And what the people then and the people now need to hear is a message about repentance. You think about all the woes, all the issues, all the problems, all the struggles that we have in society, society today. What could solve those problems? a healthy dose of repentance. That should have got some sort of amen there because it's the truth. Why do we have the problems that we have today? It's because we have by and large walked away from the word of God and the teaching of God and obedience to that word in our life. That brings the problems. You see, the, the scripture that Trevor was praying from earlier when King Solomon is dedicating the temple there and he talks about repent or he talks about revival and renewal. What necessitates revival and renewal? Sin in our hearts. And so Solomon is praying there. When we walk away from you, when we turn away from your word and we realize that and we repent of that and we call out on your name, hear from heaven and forgive us and restore us. Man, we need that today. In the church, in the community, and in society. Without repentance, there can be no salvation. Which means there can be no entry into the kingdom of God. You know, we try to think through this theologically when we consider the magnification or the Uh, ramifications, I should say, of the doctrine of salvation, what we see and what we begin to understand is that God's choice of us is unconditional. But our receiving salvation is not. God is calling. God is drawing. God is wooing us to himself. God is, if you will, electing us unto salvation. But we have individually a responsibility to respond in faith and in repentance from our sin. Sinners, as the Bible lays out, are required to repent and believe. You see, these are twin decisions, which when taken together are what we call, theologically, conversion. Repentance and faith are not the same thing, but they're joined at the hip. I like how Wayne Grudem defines conversion. He calls it this. He says, it is our willing response to the gospel call. In which we sincerely repent of sin and place our trust in Christ for salvation. These are two distinguishable yet inseparable parts. They're like two sides of a coin. You can never have a one-sided coin. You ever thought about that? That every coin you may have, and honestly we don't use coins very much these days unless you're at the car wash. And then you use a lot of coins. That's about the only time we use coins. But when you have a coin in your hand, you can never have a one-sided coin. Why? Because it's a three-dimensional object. And there's always two sides of it. And then the other part's round. So one side says one thing. The other side says another thing. That is the same with our salvation. There is a need for faith. And the fruit of that faith is repentance. And they work together. These are the conditions for salvation. Repentance and faith they occur simultaneously and taken together make up this act of conversion. Jesus and the apostles uphold these conversions. In fact, Mark tells us in Mark 1:15 that when Jesus began his ministry and Jesus began to preach, what did he say? He says you must repent and believe in the gospel. Paul tells the Thessalonians. In 1st 1st Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, he talks about how they turned from God To God, from idols to serve the living and true God. So what we see there in the Thessalonians is faith to know Jesus is the Savior and a repentance to turn away from their former idols to serve the living and true God. Perhaps it's not too difficult for us to understand the need for faith in Jesus. I mean, surely most of us have grown up in church. We are members of this church. We hopefully are in relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you understand that there is a need for faith. That just makes sense. But many times what falls uh, on deaf ears is this call and this necessity for repentance, That there actually needs to be a volitional, willful decision to turn from how one is living life to turn to how how one ought to live life. It makes sense that conversion and entry requires belief. But do we understand that it requires repentance as well? In fact, I firmly believe that we may not all understand what biblical repentance is or how biblical repentance is lived out. Danny Aiken defines repentance as this. He says, it's a change of mind. That leads to a change of action. So the the whole idea of repentance is that I am living in one direction. I am living for hell. I'm living for Satan. I'm living for self. And you come face-to-face with the reality of that sinfulness and the condemnation it brings on your life. You come face-to-face with the reality of Jesus, his goodness, and his grace. And in faith, you decide, I don't want to live for this. It's not worthy of my life. I am choosing To live for Jesus. I am turning, having a change of mind that leads to a change of action, and now I'm pursuing Christ. You see, it's one's heartfelt willingness to have Jesus save him or her from sin. That's what repentance is it is the full apprehension of one's lostness, the nature of sin, and the judgment, inevitable judgment that's coming. That is what leads a person to renounce sin and turn from it. In the New Testament, the term most often translated as repent is that Greek word, metanoeo. It means to change. Your mind, but it carries this fuller idea of changing one's way of life as the result of complete change of thought, of complete change of attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. So, in other words, this term is, is laying in our lap the need for I must not live for what I once lived for. I must live for Jesus because He is the King and has the better way. As Jesus was teaching on the kingdom we read here that his teaching really heated up with some of these listeners who brought to him this atrocity they brought to him this this current event this headline in the newspaper They're listening to him talk about the kingdom. They're listening to him discuss what it means to live in the kingdom, how to enter the kingdom. And so they bring this this story, this headline to Jesus of these people who were basically murdered by Pilate, murdered by the Roman leader there in Jerusalem who had been killed in the act of sacrificing animals, their blood then mingles with the blood of the sacrifices, which was taboo, obviously, in the worship of God. And so they wonder why this happened. You see, they believe what sometimes we believe, that the reason bad things happen to people is because they've got something going on in their life that God is judging. Now, sometimes that happens, right? Right? Paul says that we should not be surprised when the ramifications for our sin comes back on us, right? God has not mocked whatsoever a man sows, that he shall also reap. That's what Paul says. So we should not be surprised that when you're sowing the sin of adultery, that your marriage is destroyed. And that your kids' futures are destroyed severely damaged. We should not be surprised when those things happen. Why? Because you're engaging in sinful behavior that has consequences. That's the natural fallout. But that doesn't mean that because you're going through a trial, because you're going through a rough patch in your, this season of life, that God is out for you. Like when he's got a big stick and he's trying to bang you on the top of the head. That's not the case at all. So they bring this, this situation, <clears throat> excuse me, This situation to the Lord and they're asking him about it basically because they think they're moral and upright because that's not happening to them. So they're basically looking to Jesus to validate their morality, validate their walk with God and Jesus turns it on them because that's not the case at all. In fact, he even takes it a step further. He says, what about the 18 people who were under that tower in Siloam with the edge of the city of Jerusalem and there's a construction project obviously going on and something went wrong and it failed and they became collateral damage. Does that mean that they had greater sin than the rest of the people in Jerusalem? Not at all. Very well c- could be that there were godly God-fearing men and women who were caught up in that collateral damage. And so we should not look at that as the judgment of God, but it does not negate the judgment of God. And so he calls them to repentance. These people believe what many times we believe today, that the victims of calamities and the victims of miscarriage Fortunes, were guilty of some sort of extraordinary sin that could not be kept hidden. It's the same mindset that the friends of Job, and I say that term loosely. When they came to Job, who's sitting there in his distress, and he's scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery because he's broken out in boils, he's miserable, he's lost his kids, he's lost his finances, he's obviously lost his friends, and his wife is saying, why don't you curse God and die? These men come, and after seven days begin to berate him, saying, Job, just repent of your sin. But there was nothing to repent of. So we should not think of that as the calamity. Yet there should be repentance in our life. And so. Jesus points out to these people who wanted Jesus to make them feel stable and to make them feel sanctified. And yet he was not going to play along. Jesus points out to them that they too, just like the people they think should repent, they needed to repent in their lives. So this passage here informs us that bad things happen to all kinds of people. That tragedies befall good people and bad people. The righteous and the unrighteous. No one is immune to them. In fact, sometimes unthinkable things happen to the most godly and committed people in the world. And yet in view of that, it is helpful for us to remember that not all tragedy is because of one's sin. Here's what the Bible clearly teaches us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All people have sinned and fall short of that holy standard, which is God himself. All of us fail miserably. To meet that standard. So there's a need for all people to repent. Jesus here uses this extraordinary situation to focus these people's attention. And to call our attention to the great need for repentance. Because think about this. No one can enter the kingdom of God without repentance. As the fruit of faith That is the thing that permits us, permits entry into the kingdom of God. And so there's four truths I want to lay out here for you this morning. First of all, this. Each person stands equally guilty of sin before holy God. Each person. Jesus here responds in verse 2 to his listeners by saying, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners Do You think that? Is that why you're bringing this? You see, as I said earlier, they suspected these Galileans were great offenders of God since they had been killed so scandalously. I mean, for for Pilate to send in soldiers to these people because he suspected them of some sort of sedition, so he's going to attack them at the most vulnerable time. Those Jews would have never expected Pilate to send soldiers into the temple area because that would have been scandalous and a Huge public spectacle, and yet that is exactly what happened. And so, these these people look at this situation and they think there's no other explanation for this other than the fact that they have been so wicked, God would do this in such a horrible and taboo way. Judgment has befallen upon them. Same would be true of, or at least expected, of the people who died in the accident with the tower. Jesus there in verse 4 says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all of those people who lived in Jerusalem? Thousands upon thousands of people. And these are the 18 that are the most evil in the whole city. So the point Jesus here is making with his questions was that every single person stands guilty before holy God. All of us stand guilty. We should never stand and point our fingers and say, I'm not as bad as that person. Look what that other person does. That's not how God gauges us. That's not how God looks at us. That's not how God judges us. He doesn't take my life and lay it over and against one of your lives. He takes my life and he takes your life and he lays it over and against the life of Jesus. And there's the standard. And the Bible says we've all sinned. And fallen short of God's glory. Every person stands equally guilty before holy God. There's a second truth. Each person perishes in his or her sin unless there is repentance. You see in verse 3, he says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, he says the very same thing. So if Jesus is going to make the very same statement two times within just three verses, what do you think we should be doing? Clueing into that. Lord, why the repeat? Lord, why are you emphasizing this? Obviously, it is an emphasis. So, what am I to learn from it? What am I to derive from it? What am I to gain from it? How should my life live in light of it since you're making such a big deal here? It's because he's emphasizing the fact that every person will perish in his or her sin unless there is repentance. You see, the victims were not unique. The ones whose blood was mingled with the sacrifices, the the ones who died under the tower when it collapsed, they were not unique. They were run-of-the-mill sinners, just like the rest of us, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Jesus told them, and he tells us today, that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That doesn't mean that if you go home today and you drive past a structure of some sort, that it possibly might fall on you. Lord, wouldn't that be a story today? If you sat under this preaching with this text and you are killed in some sort of freak accident where something big falls on you today. May that not happen this morning. But if it does, that doesn't mean it's God's judgment on you because you are this mass sinner, right? No, your judgment's coming if you've never come to Christ. Your judgment's coming. That judgment for you is not necessarily the mode in which you die. That judgment is coming for you in an eternity, separated from the God who created you for himself in a place called hell. It's a place of utter torment, infinite torment. That's where your judgment will be. And so Jesus here is emphasizing this reality. Unless we repent, we will all likewise Paul articulates the same truth in theological terms there in Romans 6, 23, where he says, for the wages of sin is death, the payment for your sin, the things you've earned in your sin. What you have gained there is not life. It's not freedom. It's not a better way. It's not personal autonomy. What you do in your sin is bringing death to you. Physical death, yes, we all will experience that. But there's something so much greater than physical death. And that is your physical, or I should say your spiritual death. Your separation from God. It goes back to the Garden of of Eden there where God said in Genesis 2.17, If you eat of this tree, you shall die. They ate of that fruit in chapter 3, and later they did physically die. But what do we see instantaneously in that moment when they took that fruit and their teeth pierced it? The Bible tells us that they saw their nakedness. They knew their shame. And the next thing we're seeing is them hiding from God rather than running to God, them blaming one another, even blaming God for their own sin. That's the reality of the spiritual death that takes place in our lives. And every person will perish under it unless there is repentance. This leads us to our third truth. Before we get to the third truth, let me give you some good news because that's kind of dark and and depressing to leave there. But what does the rest of Romans 6.23 say? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The free gift. See, while we are condemned by our sin, rightly so, while we are judged because of our sin, because we fall short of that standard, Paul here tells us, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so thankfully, repentance enables the reception of spiritual life. If 623. Letter A, if the first portion of that verse was all we had, God would be just and right and we would get everything we deserve in our sin. But he's good and he's gracious and he says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This leads us to a third truth. Each person receives the opportunity to repent of sin and to bear spiritual fruit. So Jesus has laid out these statements about the reality of their spiritual condition now in verses six through nine but we're going to look at verses six through eight in this point he he gives them a picture right he presents a parable to them that's going to give them a word picture to better understand what's going on here look what he says he says a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none he said to the vine dresser look for three years now i've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and i find none cut it down why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure, put on fertilizer. The parable here that we read rests on three symbolisms that probably were not as apparent to these pre cross listeners of Jesus. It's only after the resurrection. It's probably only after the uh, Holy Spirit comes. And so the early church was able to look back on these words and fully grasp the magnitude of what Jesus was saying in these symbols. The fig tree represents Israel, as it often did in the Old Testament. Those listening to Jesus, as well as us today, were to examine themselves. Based on that metaphor, they were to see themselves as the fig tree. They were to see themselves in Israel. They were to see themselves as one who's been created by God and planted by God and God expecting to see fruit in our lives. He is the owner. Jesus, then, would be the vine dresser. They are in concert, but without interrupting their harmony, the owner argues from the logic of righteousness I've planted this tree, I've come for three years, there's no fruit on it, cut it down. Why is it taking a vital ground, great uh, uh, space in this garden, cut it down? And yet the vine dresser is reasoning, reasoning from the logic of mercy. Oh, owner, master, lord of this vineyard, let's give it another year. Let let, let me cultivate it. Let me dig around it. Let let me do what I can to to get those roots out of the soil that's obviously not producing fruit, not giving the nutrients needed. Let me dig around it and let me bring in other things to fertilize it and to allow it and to cause it to growth. And so if it produces fruit, that's well and good. That's what we want to see. But if it doesn't produce fruit, then yes, we cut it down. And so the owner, as we know, had planted the fig tree and he expects to bear fruit. The vine dresser wants to see fruit. He's asking for more time. He states here that he's going to do all of these things. And so we see two things become glaringly apparent to us. Here's the first thing. Jesus gives ample opportunities to respond in faith and repentance to the gospel. So don't make the mistake of disconnecting the parable from what Jesus was talking about earlier. Everyone will perish in their sin if they don't repent, right? So let's, let's make sure they're connected here. So see yourself as that tree, that fig tree that's been planted by God. He's created you for himself. He's created you for his glory. It's our responsibility. It's the fig tree's responsibility to respond to that. Right? To respond in faith and to respond in repentance. Jesus is the one who comes alongside. He's the one who digs. He's the one who fertilizes. He's the one who calls us to faith. So he gives us ample opportunities to do so. He tells the the owner of the vineyard here give me one more year. Give me another chance. Give me more time. I will till, I will fertilize. So that we might see the fruit of repentance. Second thing we see here is Jesus does not give an infinite amount of time to respond in faith and repentance to the gospel. In this parable, there's four years. There's been three years where that fig tree's been planted, it's growing, but there's no fruit on the vine. The vine dresser says, give me another year. So that tells us here that God may give you five years, he may give you 10 years, he may give you 50 years or 88 years, uh, lifespan, opportunities to hear the gospel, opportunities to respond in faith and repentance to the gospel, but you do not have an infinite amount of time. You see, once your window is closed, whatever that window is, and ultimately we know it's at least your lifetime, but it could be even shorter than that. But whatever window you have, when that window is closed, there is no more opportunity for you to respond in faith and in repentance to the gospel for your life. There's no more chance that you're not going to die in your sins and go to a place of of purgatory or a place of somewhat torment and earn your way into heaven as some denominations might teach. That's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to, to live a life of sin, a life of rebellion against God, and then go to the next life and, and wait for someone to act on your behalf, to be baptized for the dead, or to have enough good works, as some, think, some teachers might say. That is not what the Bible says. But instead, what the Scriptures tell us very clearly, even in this text, is that you have one life to live, but window of Opportunity. And when that passes, it's over. There's not an infinite amount of time. And so I don't say that this morning to scare anyone who's in that spiritual condition. I just say that because Jesus is saying it here that you need to know what they needed to know. That there's only a short window for you to respond in faith and repentance. Right? So I grew up in church like many of you did. I heard the gospel often just like you do. But that window was short for me as well. Thankfully, I responded in faith and repentance to it. And there's been ongoing faith and repentance in my life to be indicative of that conversion experience at 18. But I had an opportunity just like you have an opportunity. I responded in faith with repentance. And this morning, if you've never done that in your life, that is the greatest decision you could ever make, to faith into Jesus and to turn from your sin, turning to him. Each person receives the opportunity to do just that. There's a fourth truth. Each person shoulders the weight of his or her decision on repentance. Look at verse nine. The vine dresser says here that if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. You see, when a sinner responds in faith and repentance to the gospel message, it is a good and well thing. You see, because those of us who have responded in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ, we can actually sing that song, It Is Well With My Soul. There's not a greater song. I, I love Amazing Grace. It's a wonderful song, theologically rich. I mean, I love that old hymn of ours. But when I'm preaching a funeral or attending a funeral of a believer, I don't think there's a greater song that we can sing than It Is Well With My Soul. I mean, if you don't have it well with your soul at the point of death, You are of most people to be pitied. And those of us who are believers and we have loved ones who go on, we can have hope not just in this life but in the hope in the resurrection life all because of what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus continues to do for us. So I love that song. It is well with us. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You see, this person who responds in faith is made right with God the Father. That person is adopted as a child of God and receives the full rights and responsibilities of royalty. And have this person, the sinner who responds in further rebellion to the gospel, to that person, it is not well with them. The person is awarded the fair wage for the rebellion, which is eternal death. eternal torment, eternal separation from God. You see, Paul's still true here for the wages of sin is death. If you choose to continue to rebel against God, God will give you everything that you desire. He is fair in that and he's good. But if you will repent, you don't have to bear the weight of your sin. Jesus has already borne it on the cross. And so that weight has been lifted from you. If you would just reach out and say, Father, I receive this in your name. I receive this into my life. I turn from my rebellion. I turn from the way I live my life. I turn in faith to Jesus and Jesus alone. When you do that, the weight that you carry for your sin, the just condemnation that you're under is removed from you. And now you receive the yoke of Jesus and his burden is light. His burden I say easy, it's easy from the sense that Jesus gives you the person of the spirit of God. He empowers you to live the life of Jesus and to do it in his name. Doesn't mean it's always worldly easy, but that burden is light. And so here Jesus makes it very clear that each person shoulders the weight of his or her decision on repentance. This morning, if you are... Reading through the Bible with us on our reading plan, you would have read Matthew 21, 22, Psalm 91. I'm not going to ask if you're still on the plan. I don't want you to incriminate yourself this morning. Right? But if you're on it, and you should be on it, if you, if you stopped along the way, hey, get back on the wagon. Right? Read the Bible every single day. We will do another Bible reading plan because I just believe it's crucial. Man, I believe it's so fundamentally important that you read annually through the Bible. Call me crazy. I've got 22 years of experience doing it, and it's, there's nothing that so connects the Word of God than systematically reading through it every single year. So this morning, if you read that with us today... You saw there in Matthew 22, this parable of the wedding feast. And in this parable, what we see is the kingdom of God is compared to a king who throws a wedding feast for his son and he sent for the guest. And you know, the story Jesus conveys there that this, this master, this, this king who's thrown this wedding feast for his son, finds out that the guests have all declined the invitation. They're making up excuses why they won't come. So the king sends his servants out alongside the road. Rather than the nobility being brought in, rather than the bigwigs being brought in, now he's inviting the commoners to the wedding feast and they respond to the invitation. They come in and as they come into this wedding feast, they're outfitted in war- robes of royalty, wedding garments that are right to be in that ceremony. And yet the story takes a twist. It tells us that the king or the the master comes and he finds one man, one individual there who's not wearing the wedding garments. And he asks him, why are you not wearing the wedding garments? He probably gives him some sort of flippant answer. Don't really care. Don't really want to wear that. It's not my thing. It's not my style. Whatever the answer is, the story goes that the man who refused the wedding garments was thrown out And sent to his proper place of atonement. Now, you and I are like those commoners who received an open invitation from the king to enter and celebrate in the kingdom. You're not worthy to be there on your own. The commoners could not come into this wedding feast without the invitation of the king, without the invitation of the master. You're not worthy. Left to yourself, you would rightly perish in your sin. But for us today, what we need to understand from the text that we've been looking at is the invitation from the king, the opportunity to respond has been given to us. And it's our responsibility to respond through faith and repentance. In other words, to exchange our old worldly rags that we're wearing for royal priestly garments. Fit for such an an engagement. The decision is ours to make. We could wear our old worldly garments, or we could exchange them for white new ones. The one who desires to enjoy the blessing of the kingdom without the fruit of faith, which is repentance, will receive the king's fair judgment. The decision is yours. You can repent. You can have the old garments of sin removed so that you can put on the fresh and clean ones, those of righteousness. Or you can wear the old ones all the way to hell. That's what Jesus is saying in that text. That's what Jesus is saying in that story. That's what he's saying here to these listeners in Luke chapter 13. It all comes down to your decision and my decision of whether or not we will faith into Jesus and show the fruit of that through our repentance. It is the fruit of faith. And it does permit entry into the kingdom of God. And so this morning... What are you going to do with that invitation? You're going to be like the ones in Matthew 22 that had an invitation to come to the wedding feast and they said, you know what? I got better things to do. I'll get to that later. I'll send a gift. I'll have Amazon drop off the gift later on. It's not how you operate in the kingdom of God. No, it's a personal, volitional, responsible decision. What will you do with the invitation? To faith into Jesus and to follow that up with repentance this morning there's some of you in this room maybe watching this online that that's the decision you need to make today you know i was i was noticing obviously this week uh this is a very um uh, salvation oriented text right so as i'm preparing this week and i'm thinking about this and i'm praying through this and and as i'm contemplating our church We are, like most churches should be, a church made up of believers. Praise God that we have members that are uh, regenerate and that that know Jesus and that are going to heaven, right? Because that's not always true of churches. But in our church, and sitting here in this room, I would dare say that most of us, the vast majority of us, are in relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Some of you aren't. So how will you respond today to this invitation to the wedding feast? How will you respond today? to this invitation to repent of sin and experience life-changing Jesus Christ. This morning, I would invite you to come. I told I was meeting with some folks this week, shoring up their membership process and all that stuff, and we were talking about coming down this aisle, because I say that every Sunday. How are you going to respond? I want you to come forward, right? I want you to make this decision, and whether or not you do is on you, but I think it's important to step out. But walking this little aisle here and talking to me does not bring salvation to you, right? I don't have a magic wand that that confers salvation upon you. But here's what we will do. I'll pass you on to one of our elders, one of our elders' wives, someone that's part of our uh, Uh, Our team that shares with people, and they will walk you through the gospel and pray with you so you can make this decision. That's what's going to happen. So some of you need to make that decision. Some of you in this room, because you're a Christian, the decision you need to do is repent of sin. You've got something in your life that requires repentance. You say, well, Pastor, you said you've got to repent to be saved. Yeah, but there's still ongoing repentance in our life, right? We need to walk close and clean with the Lord. And there are times in our lives when we don't do that. I mean, King David is a great example of that. You can be called a man who has a heart for God, a man after God's own heart, and yet he royally, no pun intended, sinned in his life. Right? So maybe that's you today. And the call of God upon your life is to turn from your sin, even as a believer, and to turn back to Jesus Christ. Not being saved again. If you're in Christ, you're not getting saved again, but you've been walking at a guilty distance, and you need to get up and step with him. And you can't do that if there's something that's breaking that fellowship in your life. Right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning, we are hit in the face with this text. Hit square in the nose. And that is a good place to be. It's very possible that people in this room Those watching us online felt conviction. Lord, they they feel contrition of heart. They they see their sin. They realize their sin. They acknowledge their sin. They know it's there. And they just now need to take the next step and say, I confess this and I turn from it. For those who are believers, that sin is keeping them at a distance from you. And you want them to come home. So, Father, give that believer, give those believers the faith that says, I will do whatever's necessary to get out from under this sin in my life. And, Lord, I pray for those in this room and watching us that need a relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, they don't need more religion. They don't need more self-help. They don't need more the strong talks, they need to smack their face with the spiritual reality of heaven and hell and the separation that their sin has created and judgment it's brought them under. And in faith and with repentance, run to Jesus. May that happen this morning. Father, as we think about that parable, the vine dresser saying, Master, just give me another year. Give me a little bit more time. Let me dig up the roots. Let me, let me, let me uh, pour manure in there. Let me fertilize that thing. Father, may we be open to that digging up and uprooting of our lives, which sometimes is very painful. God, it could be that some of the things we're experiencing today are not judgment of God, but they feel that way. But they're God's grace. To get our eyes off of ourselves and our eyes off our sinful way of living and get our eyes onto Jesus. and so may you uproot us from the things of this world that's so entrapped us. And God may we run to you. This response time is yours, Father. Have your will, Have your way in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stay into our. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus or if you would like to pray with someone or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.